right. This semester, we are, up until spring break, are studying the first few chapters of Genesis. And Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And part of what I really appreciate about Genesis is that it helps us to understand, even though it's an ancient book, it helps us to understand the world that we're living in and understand ourselves. And one thing that Genesis helps us understand is relationships. Uh, Relationships are just the most befuddling and difficult thing imaginable. It just doesn't seem like when you know people, it should be that hard to get along with them and to enjoy them. Whether it's your friends or roommates or parents or you're dating um, or you're married, uh, all of it is just seems to be way more difficult than it needs to be. We all crave relationships, but it just seems so hard to go about doing them. And um, I love in movies, this is a sure sign of a terrible movie if at the beginning the character gets into some kind of uh, bad situation, a ridiculous situation, and there's that classic like record scratch, you're like, and there's a freeze frame, right? And the person's on the screen and they're like, they're narrating, they're like, yep, that's me. (laughs) Bet you're wondering how I got into this situation. Um, And uh, that has become like in the meme world, which I appreciate. But um, I kind of think about that with, with relationships. It's like, if we, if we want to be together so badly and long for connection, like, how did we get here? Uh, how did we get into this place? Why is it so difficult to be comfortable, like, with yourself and with other people and with God? And this passage that I want to read with us tonight from Genesis chapter 3 gives a tremendous amount of insight into, it really is in a lot of ways, like the record scratch freeze frame, how did I get here? on why our relationships are so difficult. So we're going to read it. It's a bit of a long passage. Um, So the book of Genesis is the first book in the Bible. And uh, the, the, the people in this story, Adam and Eve, are the first, from the biblical perspective, the first humans created on the earth. So they're all of our first parents. So we're going to pick up here. And I'm going to read this as the word of the living God. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God had just created them. They were naked and not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, things creeping me out, uh, and it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. 
The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work, to work the ground in which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the, the cherubim, uh, the, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Uh, there's a lot there, and so we're going to pray and ask God's blessing as we consider His Word. Uh, bow with me, or um, just think along in your heart. Uh, Father, thank you so much for Your Word. Um, we know, um, or we're told in Your Word that it's a lamp into our feet and a light to our path. And that really that we, we're kind of in darkness and that you show us the way to go with your word. And so we ask that you would do that wherever we're coming from tonight. Lord, I thank you especially for our friends here tonight that are just checking this whole thing out. Or for folks that are really confused or hurting right now. I just ask that you would speak to us and that we would find life and health in you. And we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Um, so, do you know the difference between shame and guilt. Uh, there was a, a, there's a sociologist, social worker named Brene Brown. She's really helpful in breaking this stuff down. But she basically says, look, the difference between guilt and shame is guilt is feeling bad about something that you've done. Like, I shouldn't have done that. I feel badly about that. And shame is feeling bad about who you are. That there's something fundamentally wrong with you or unlovely or unlovable about you. Guilt can be really helpful because if you feel guilt, you can realize, oh, I've done something wrong. I should change. I can change what I'm doing. But shame convinces us that we are actually incapable of change, that we are incapable of being loved. And shame is destructive and only fuels destructive behavior in our lives. Brene Brown says shame corrodes the part of us that believes we are capable of change. It erodes our courage and fuels disengagement. And I would argue that shame, that feeling of not just that I've done something wrong, but there is something wrong with me, fundamentally broken and not okay with me, is the biggest driver in your day-to-day life. Either trying to avoid shame um, and put it away, trying to cover it up with other things in your life that might make your life look better, Um, numbing the shame that you feel or dwelling on the thought that you are unlovely or inadequate or unlovable. And what happens when shame is the big driver in our day-to-day lives, it leaves no room for joy 
or love or connection or the things that we know really are true to our humanity. So what I want to talk about tonight, uh, and I want to be as quick as possible so I can get Colin up here to share, is where shame started and what Jesus does about our shame. Okay, that's really only two things I want to talk about. Where shame started and what Jesus does about our shame. Um, I said this last week, but I'm a huge Toy Story fan, and part of what I love about all the Toy Story movies, which, by the way, Toy Story 1 and 2 have 100 on Rotten Tomatoes, and Toy Story 3 has a 99. So lest you think that Toy Story is not legit filmmaking, you're wrong. Um, (laughs) The beauty of the Toy Story movies is that the characters over time find their rest and hope and peace and security in being Andy's toys. That they have a place in the world because there is an owner or a master that loves them, and they, they, they are his delight, and he delights in them. And in that way, it really is a story about God. And in Toy Story 3, uh, which you may know, spoiler alert, they're, you know, they're like older than you almost at this point, um, is that the, the toys in Andy's room, some of them get sent off um, to a daycare center um, called Sunnyside Daycare, and there's a voice there of a bear named Lotso Huggin' Bear, which is a great name. Um, and lots of hugging bear is, is this cute pink te- uh, teddy bear, but he tells the toys this. Uh, he says, no owner means no heartache. We don't need owners. We are our own owners, masters of our own fate. And he really throws the whole narrative upside down. Instead of finding delight and joy in having an owner, we don't need an owner. An owner is actually oppressive and hurtful to us. And so the toys get thrown into this crisis of identity. You good? It's zero, zero, zero. <laughs> Change that later. Um, I got nothing to hide, friends. Um, <clears throat> but the toys get thrown into this crisis of identity because they don't know any longer who their owner is. And in the garden, a very similar thing happens because Adam and Eve, our first parents, have been enjoying this special relationship with God where they were naked and they weren't ashamed, which is something... To even just to dwell on it for a moment, to imagine being naked with another human and feeling perfectly fine and free and open and loved in that, and being naked and unashamed before God, where God was with them, they walked with him. There wasn't a sense of like, when I'm praying, does he even hear? He was right there walking with them. Their entire existence was marked by trust and vulnerability and love. And then this other voice, like the voice of Lotso, comes into them. The voice of who uh, Moses, who's writing this, calls the serpent. Who the Bible calls Satan, or the deceiver, or the evil one. And I understand sometimes that sounds a little silly. We're talking about Satan, we're talking about demons. Um, But we have to come to grips with really why um, there are evil elements in the world. Um, And I think this makes a lot of sense of it. That there's this voice called the deceiver that speaks to our first parents. And what he says to them, and he says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Adam and Eve were in this beautiful garden, and there were these two prominent trees. One was the tree of life, and one was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's not true that God said, don't eat of any of these trees. He's, he's actually lying to them. What, what God said was, you can eat of all the trees, Eat anything you want in its abundance. God was generous with them. He said, but there's this one tree that if you eat of it, you will die. So please don't eat it. I want you to live and not die. God was protecting them and caring for them. But the serpent comes and he asks her, are, are you sure that God said that? And he lies to her and she's, she gets a little mixed up. 
And she's not quite sure what God said. She says, well, he said we shouldn't touch it either, I think. I'm not quite sure. And when he gets her a little confused, he just slips in a pure lie. And he says, look, if you eat from that tree, you're not going to die. Okay. Um, God lied to you. You won't die. What's actually going to happen, he says, is for, when, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Basically, what, what the devil, the deceiver, the serpent says to Adam and Eve is, God is holding out something from you. There is this tree that would give you all this wonderful stuff, and God knows that if you eat of it, you'll be like him, and he doesn't want you to be like him. He's stingy. He's selfish. Maybe you shouldn't trust him as blindly as you've been trusting him. He's working hard to make God sound harsh or ugly to Adam and Eve. And to this point, uh, Adam and Eve had no reason to think that God would withhold anything good from them. Um, but now the, certain, the serpent interjects this very subtle but devastating question. And I would say it is the cancerous question that is eating our hearts still today, years and years and years and years and years later. And it's this. It's, can you be completely sure that God actually can be trusted? That he actually loves you and has your best at heart. It's like it seems to me like he's being a little stingy. Are you sure that he's everything that you think he is? Their security before God, his love to them, is what is in question. Is God holding out on me? Can I trust God with my vulnerability? And when that trust is shaken, what it means to be a human from the Bible's perspective is that you thrive and have life when you are trusting that God is able and willing to care for you. And when that trust is shaken, we are susceptible to anything. And so Adam and Eve, they take of the fruit of this tree, and they're not sure about God's character, so they eat. And are their eyes open to the mysteries of the universe? Are they suddenly wise and beautiful and understand everything? No. The first thing that happens to them when they eat of this fruit that God told them not to eat is that they realize that they are naked. It had never occurred to them before to think about the fact that they didn't have any clothes on. It'd be like me saying, oh, you might want to do something like you you don't have any wings. And you're like, well, yeah, I mean, obviously, because it's not part of my, like, you know, mojo, it's not part of my existence to have wings. Suddenly they realize something is wrong with them. They had no parameters for nakedness. They had nothing to worry about. Why would anyone look at them strange? But suddenly they feel inadequate. They feel like there's something is the matter with them. Before they were naked and not ashamed, and now they're no longer safe to show what about them is the most intimate. They're no longer safe to be vulnerable in front of God or in front of another person. Now they are being seen, and it scares them. Uh, you know, it's, it's awful. Adam and Eve stood before each other as friends and lovers and husbands and wife. And they were completely exposed and had nothing to fear. And now they're ashamed of themselves and inadequate. And that original vulnerability in the garden is something that we long for deeply. Everyone in here longs to be seen and to, know, to be known and to not be rejected, to be loved and brought in. And that original vulnerability can never be recovered for us until Jesus comes, returns, and puts everything to right. But notice how they're experiencing shame and not guilt. Remember, guilt is feeling bad for what you did, and shame is feeling bad about who you are. 
If they were experiencing guilt, Adam would have merely said, oh my gosh, what have I done? God, I'm so sorry. Help me. I'm I'm in a mistake. And he would go to Eve. Help me. Like, you're you're the one that I love, that I trust. I've made a mistake. Would you, I confess it to you to help me to learn. But instead, what do they do? They, they, They run. They go into the bushes which is a classic place when people don't have clothes to go. Um, some of you are experiencing that, experience that firsthand. Um, they, they run into the bushes, and they try to cover up their shame by sewing together some leaves. Okay? They take the best thing they have, they get some leaves, they try to cover up their, the intimate areas of their bodies. But of course, you know, sewing together some leaves is just woefully inadequate to cover up yourself to cover, cover up what, is shame, what you think is shameful about you. And they hide from God. They hide from God in the trees as if he doesn't know where they are and as if they could hide themselves from him. And what breaks my heart, I think, particularly about this is that right before this, Adam had just sang a song when Eve was created. That this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Like the thing that I've been longing for, she's here, and now uh, he's distant from her. He's withdrawn from her. Um, Eve is insecure about her body in front of Adam and doesn't want it to be seen. They're afraid of God or skeptical about God or running from God. And they just can't talk to him. And I, I would imagine at this point this is starting to feel a bit familiar if we're thinking clearly about our own lives. I mean, your friend is really quiet and you can't tell like whether it's something you did, but you're afraid to ask them because you don't want to make them more upset. Or you're upset with a friend, but you're so afraid of the confrontation, even if it's a small thing. And you know, I should just go and talk to them about it, because I love them, they love me, and we'll work through it. But you're afraid of what might happen, so you keep it from them, and then you bury it inside, and it grows into a resentment that slowly begins to kill you from the inside, where it festers. Or you try to talk to other people first. I won't talk to them, I'll talk to this person instead. And then they make you even more confused, and then suddenly the situation is so yucky because now they know and they know, and I never talk to this person because we're afraid of them. Um, you know, after the date, you go back to your room, and it was fun and exciting, and then it wasn't. Then it, then it, didn't, it wasn't right anymore. It was no longer fun. And now it's, at best, awkward. Um, everyone seems, maybe, seems to be able to have fun. They come to something like RUF or go out to a party and... Everyone seems to know how to make friends, but like I just don't. Like, I, it's like everyone's speaking a language that I don't speak. Um, or you want to get past what someone said about you, but like you just can't. You're like prayed to like forgive them, and you just can't get over it. And you just can't open the Bible because you're like, what does it even matter anyway? When I pray, it just feels like no one's listening. Um, and I want to talk to someone about Jesus because... He has, he's changed my life, but like, I, if they knew about what I looked at on my computer, then they would reject me. So we don't. And whether you're here in, tonight and you're a Christian or you're not, this is a picture of all of us. That we've been deceived into wondering whether God loves us and can be trusted. We're ashamed by our failures and struggling to keep it all hidden. And we're alienated and hiding from, from, one, another, from one another and from God. And, uh, you know, when we do the thing that God says we shouldn't do or we don't do the thing that God says that we should do, um, it hurts our relationship with God and with others. 
But what God calls us to do is to come to Him for grace. Um, But what happens with our shame is we begin to think, I'm not sure if I can go to Him. So I reflect inward on myself and turn in on myself and then I lose all of my joy and I disqualify myself from every relationship. Um, You know, like we cover our need for connection with surfacey friends or we nurse secret addictions and shames or we return to what hurt us and hurt ourselves again because it's familiar and comforting to us. Or we numb it all with Netflix or alcohol or, or porn or whatever. The thing is that you numb yourself with. And I know this is a bit heavy, but I, I think unless we catch the heaviness of our situation, we just miss Jesus and his sweetness. A writer named Dan Allender, who I, I really recommend you reading any of his books, he nails it when he says this. He says, the dread of being found out is sufficient to fuel radical denial, work, alcoholism, perfectionism, re-victimization, and a host of other ills. But the fear is greater than simply losing a relationship. It is the terror that if our dark soul is discovered, we will never be enjoyed, nor desired, nor pursued by anyone. That is shame. That if someone really sees me, that they will never desire or pursue me, and so I have to hide it. And that is shame, and it started at the garden. But God does not leave us there. This is how Jesus deals with shame, and God talks about it right here in Genesis chapter 3. In our shame and guilt, we run and hide from God because we're afraid. But look at how God responds, starting down in verse 14. Well, number one, he knew what happened, and he went after Adam and Eve anyway. He pursued them. Um, But then he, he starts to declare some curses. Because the things that we do when we turn from God, I mean, they have consequences to us. They make life harder. They make our relationships harder. They sow disorder into our lives. But, and so God curses the, the woman and the man. says, like, the things that are germane to your life are going to be harder for you because of sin. But look what he says to the serpent. This is where I want to focus. Um, he says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is what he's saying. There's two words here that you've got to catch. First, he says enmity. That word enmity means that, like, war, life or death conflict. And he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, singular, and her offspring, singular. That there's going to be an offspring of Satan and there's going to be an offspring of this woman. And what I have written here says, he shall bruise your head. But in the the Hebrew, what that really looks like is crush. That this seed is going to come from the woman and and it's going to crush Satan's head. And Satan will crush his heel. The very first thing that God does in reaction to the fall is promise that the deceiver is going to be crushed eventually, that God is going to save his people, that there's going to be this person that comes that will descend from the woman that will crush Satan, crush the one that has deceived our hearts, the son of Eve and the son of God. And that person's name is the Lord Jesus. And he came and he walked with us and he lived with us and he went to the cross to die. Because a lot of us, I think, even if you grew up in the church, you're like, why is it the case that Jesus has to go and he... We worship a God who's stretched on a cross to die. 
And because what's happening is Satan is inflicting a wound that he thinks is going to kill the seed of the woman. But in fact, what happens at the cross is that Jesus takes all of our shame and guilt and muck and filth and puts it onto himself. And he dies. And yet three days later, he rises again. And in that death and resurrection, he crushes Satan. Because everything that would have kept us from God, that would have kept us running, would have kept us hiding, would have kept us alienated from God and from each other, Jesus takes onto himself and removes it from you. Um, my, my kids um, throw up a lot. Um, it's like, I've thrown up one time in like the past eight years, you know. Three of my kids have thrown up in 2018. Um, and uh, the other night, one of my daughters, um, right, me and my wife and I were just getting ready to go to sleep. And I can just tell from how they say, Daddy? I'm like, <laughs> Like, she threw up. And she's on the top bunk, you know, like, and so it was like coming down on the ground. And um, it was really nasty. But I go into her room, and she's a mess. My oldest daughter, Georgia. She's thrown up on herself, on the blankets, on the pillow, on the teddy bears, multiple, the books that she had. She just like poured stuff in her bed. And she's thrown up on all of it. And of course, what I do is I take her out of the bed. But of course, taking her onto myself puts all of her crap onto me, right? All of her throw up, everything that was yucky in that bed comes onto me. And I carry her to the bathroom. And I, and I remove her clothes and I, I, I clean her up. And then I go to her room and I strip everything on that bed. And I put new on. And meanwhile, I'm covered. And that is a picture of what Jesus does for the things that we just think, if somebody saw that, they would never love me. And Jesus says to each of us tonight, I don't just see it. I've taken it on me. So that you can be clean, so that you can be pure, so that you can be made right with God and with one another. And don't you just long for everything to be made right. For everything that's that's dirty and yucky and that this makes you turn in on yourself to be removed from you. And that's what Jesus does at the cross. The Lord Jesus took a vicious blow, but he wasn't crushed. He rose again from the dead and he declared, look, my people are no longer ruled by sin and by the deceiver. He laid down his life for us so that he could be, so that the, the, the deceiver could be put away. And Jesus is coming again to crush death. To death. And God responds to, to, to that shame by crushing the deceiver, taking everything on himself. But what he also does is he covers up our shame. Look in verse 21. We're going to bring it down for a landing here. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Innocent blood in that moment was shed so that Adam and Eve wouldn't have to endure the shame of their nakedness. Uh, And in the same way, the blood of our Lord Jesus, who never sinned, was shed so that we could be clothed by him. He took off everything yucky on from us, put it on himself, and he covers us. The prophet Isaiah said that Jesus clothes us with garments of salvation like a bride adorns herself with jewels. Ladies, those of you that have thought about your wedding day, some of you are planning your wedding day. And you just think, I mean, one of the best moments at a wedding is when everyone stands up and looks to the back when the bride is revealed, right? Because that's the moment that we're all waiting for. Look how beautiful she is. 
And that is what Jesus does to us. He clothes us with things that are like the jewels that a bride wears. Beautiful adornment. He covers us up when we are naked and embarrassed and afraid. And Jesus, naked on the cross, takes our shame and all of his wonderful love and righteousness and marvelous light now wrap around his people like a beautiful linen garment covering us from head to toe. And look, God does that for us so that you don't have to hide anymore. So that your immediate reaction once, when, when you just do that thing, you're like, I just told myself I wasn't going to do that. Instead of justifying it or running from it or numbing it out, just to go to Jesus and say, I've done it again, but I know you still cover me. And you're more willing to receive me than I am to ask for forgiveness. And you can go to other human beings and tell them, this is what I've done. Jesus says I'm beautiful. Will you help me? We don't have to be afraid of one another. Because God doesn't laugh at our shame and our failure. He doesn't stand aloof. He comes to us and covers us in Jesus. And that in Christ you are safe and known. Because shame can't live where Jesus reigns. And so, if you're here um, and you're not a believer tonight, you're not yet knowing what you're going to do, you're confused, um, like pretty much all of us are, my question to you is, what are you going to do with your shame? Do you have somewhere to go where there's hope for you that you actually can change and be beautiful again? Um, What if you stepped out of hiding and came to God? And if you're here tonight and you're covered by Jesus, and you're, you, you want to trust Him, and um, you, you want to have new life in Him, uh, my question for you is, who is telling you that you are naked? That you are inadequate? That you are insufficient for the things that God is calling you to do? You are not naked. You are clothed in Jesus, who loves you and has a hope and a future for you. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much for the hope um, of the gospel right here at the very beginning of Genesis. We thank you that from the very beginning you promised um, to make everything right. And Lord, we have made a mess. Um, and In many ways, we as, as a people are like a train derailed into the dirt. And where would we even begin to figure out how to put that right? And yet you, Lord Jesus, have come to deliver us from our shame and to give us beauty. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to run to you, to find beauty in you, that we would love you, that we would be infatuated with you, that we would find you to be beautiful and believable, and that we would no longer be afraid of you and afraid of our neighbor. Only you can do that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.